Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You could find it about my Hindu Studies work at rajbalkaran.com slash academia. More important, uh, today I get to speak to Dr. Harshita Kamat, who is the Vishweshwara Rao and Sita Kopaka Assistant Professor in Telugu Culture in the Department of Literature and History at Emory University. Good morning, Harshita. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We are about to dig into your very interesting, exciting book, The Artifice of Brahmin Masculinity in South Asian Dance. Who doesn't want to hear about dance or masculinity or the artifice of Brahmin anything on this channel? So it sounds great. <laughs> so tell us, uh, there's, the title itself says so much about the book, but if you... Um, Tell us how, how you got into this project. Where did this book project come from? So I am trained as a Kuchipudi dancer. The book is about Kuchipudi dance, which is a South Indian, what is now called a classical dance form. Um, and I've been trained in this dance form since the early 90s um, with a teacher based in Atlanta. And one of the first items that I learned um, after learning sort of basic steps uh, was an item um, of about Satyabhama, who is uh, the wife of the Hindu deity Krishna. And the item itself is her Pravesha Dharavu, or her entrance song, um, where she enters onto the stage and announces who she is. Um, and so the item really, I really struggled to actually learn how to perform the item because she was very proud. And that's at least how my teacher described her to me and was very confident in terms of her own identity. And part of that is the genre of the Pravesha that of whom you're announcing who you are. So there's some level of explanation of oneself, but uh, her in particular, really, she just really intrigued me as a character and I wanted to learn more. And so that stemmed into some undergraduate thesis work that I did that actually ended up getting published about um, women dancers in America and their interactions with goddesses um, and various forms of ritual among American Hinduism, and then ultimately yielded uh, a dissertation project, which is now the book. Um, so it, the first page of the introduction actually also starts with her Pravesha Dharavu. So in a way, it's kind of my entry into um, into this character and the dance form more broadly, but also um, the reader's entry into the book. It's a uh, it's very symbolic and fascinating. Uh, when you think about the the, um, the the bhava, the sort of mood that your teacher um, um, guided you about regarding Satyabhama, can you imagine if you are the, um, the, the 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 wife or the primary consort of Krishna who has so many gopis? I suppose you'd have no choice but to be pretty darn proud and, and grounded about it. Um, <laughs> sounds like a quite quite the figure. Um, so this is obviously a project in which you have um, some personal knowledge uh, to draw from, which I imagine has probably enriched your study of the topic. Would you say so? 
Yes, ab absolutely. And I talk about it in the introduction of the book that that dance really became my entry into the field. Um, so initially, you know, I had been taking dance lessons for a long time and then had also taken lessons in India. And so when I received a Fulbright to spend, you know, nine months um, in field work, part of that time was spent in Kuchpuri, which is the village where this dance form is uh, from, as well as uh, some time in Hyderabad and Chennai. And I found that it, you know, initially when you're doing ethnographic fieldwork, you have these kind of awkward periods where you don't know anyone and they don't know you. And it's it's hard to establish relationships. And so for me, the easiest way um, for establishing those relationships was by dancing. So I found that I would spend my mornings and sometimes afternoons just dancing in people's classrooms to, to develop relationships. And then it was usually the breaks between classes um, that I would try to squeeze in an interview. Um, but that was the initial entry actually in Hyderabad and in Kuchbury village, as well as Chennai, that I was able to actually uh, develop these relationships because people would know my teacher. And so that, that became a point of familiarity. Oh, she's so-and-so's teacher and, or so-and-so's student. And so that allowed me to be able to engage and establish relationships more deeply. And then after a while, I didn't need to dance, right. To have those relationships. Um, but initially it was certainly very helpful. Well, it sounds like a it sounds like a fascinating leveraging of both an interest and 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 the community at your disposal to to produce this this fascinating work. Now, the artifice of Brahmin masculinity. Tell us. Um, I'll give you a choice. Either tell us about Brahmin masculinity, or tell us what the main takeaway, the main thesis, the main uh, concept uh, uh, that this book surrounds or revolves around. So I took Kuchpudi just as background. Kuchpudi is a dance form that um, was circumscribed to a community of Brahmin male performers from approximately the 18th century onwards. They, they date it much earlier. I mean, we have historical evidence that says around the 18th century. Um, and they there it's a village of 15 Brahmin families that have lived in this um, 15 or 16 Brahmin families that have lived in this particular community and they form what's called an Agraharam, right? Like, so a Brahmin sort of enclave within a broader village setting. Um, but what's interesting about this dance community is that one, all the Brahmin men in the community are participating in performance in some capacity. So they're either performers, they're gurus, that is their teachers, um, they could be drummers, they could be singers. Um, so they're related to the arts in some way. However, um, the reason that the, the book is focusing on Brahmin men in particular is that Kuchipudi as a dance form was only allowed to be performed by the men of the community. So women were not allowed to take on um, or participate in the dance form. And, and so what's interesting to me is that Satya Bhama, her name literally means in Telugu would be Bhama meaning woman, Satya meaning truth. So she's the true woman. She was only able to be performed by Brahmin men of the village, never women. That changed drastically in the mid 20th century um, when Kuchipudi as a dance form began to move out of the village into urban settings. It first really moved into Chennai. Um, so in Madras at the time where there was already a dance scene that was all beginning to blossom, that is with the kind of quote unquote revival of Paratanachyam in Chennai. And so Kuchipudi follows that same kind of process and 
be, women began to learn to dance through um, village dance teachers who've moved to Chennai, who start to teach women. And so we find that the dance forum expands to include a kind of more cosmopolitan audience um, of a range of dancers, both male and female. And so my interest is really about how do the men of this village, how do they conceive of their dance form uh, within the village context? And then how do they conceive of it as it transforms out, out, out of the village into urban settings and ultimately into transnational spaces where it's being performed across the world today? So that was the kind of hinge I'm interested in sort of what happens to um, to Brahmin masculinity in particular in terms of the wake of this kind of transnational change. Um, but let me let you ask another question before I keep talking. <laughs> no, that's all, that's all quite interesting. Um, so in terms of Brahmin masculinity, maybe say a little bit more about uh, how you use the term masculinity. You do a fair bit of disambiguation in terms of terms that you use um, uh, for impersonation um, with respect to how impersonation may be uh, conflated with something like trans transvestitism or other um, gender studies concepts. So maybe talk a little bit about your use of masculinity and gender in this work. Absolutely. So for me, I think that the, the broader work is actually just about thinking about gender categories in India um, and South Asia more broadly. I think gender is very fluid in South Asia and something like the practice of impersonation really brings that to the fore. That is, men can become women and we see that all over, right? It's not just something that's limited to a particular social context, the way it might be in an American landscape, um, but rather it's something that's almost ubiquitous uh, to South Asia. We find it in the context of Kuchpudi, obviously, which is a dance form in which male dancers don um, the Vesham, that's the, the Telugu word, Sri Vesham, or guys, of uh, female characters like Satyabhama, but we also find it in huge other variety of circumstances spanning from Ram Leela to Ras Leela to um, various forms of ritual. We can even think about possession as a form of impersonation. So I think my interest in the study is to, to be broader, right? To think about not simply just these particular male dancers in this particular village, but rather to think about how does this practice tell us something about gender and its fluidity? Um, but I would also say at the same time, what I, I sort of initially came into the project assuming, yay, gender is fluid and it's not fixed in South Asia. But increasingly what I found was that gender boundaries are both fluid and fixed. Um, and you can see that with these dancers in particular, that is, you know, they can take on female roles, they can teach other female, female dancers, but then there are only certain kinds of dancers and certain kinds of roles that they themselves are allowed to take. Um, and they also are very restrictive in terms of what um, the women of their community can do. So the fifth chapter of my book actually focuses on Brahmin women from this village who've actually been um, circumscribed from participating in Kuchipudi dance for, for generations and the ways in which they've kind of grappled with that place. So uh, at the kind of broadest level, I'm interested in, in constructions of masculinity, um, particularly because I feel like Masculinity studies is a kind of growing field in South Asia, um, and, and there are a number of studies that have worked on it, but interestingly enough, not as much has been done about the Brahmin man and sort of his place within broader societal constructs in South Asia. And I think because 
Brahmin men hold such a normative place and a powerful position, it's important to do work that interrogates what that position actually means. Because if we do that, then we have an understanding of how sort of the center of gender norms are constructed and how fragile they really are. And so that's where that word artifice sort of comes into play, is sort of critiquing this construct of Brahmin masculinity as it's constructed by these men within this village and how fragile it is when it moves out of an, a village setting into an urban or a transnational space. So speaking of the fragility of this constructed masculinity and um, um, the ways in which, as you discuss in chapter five, I believe that women are excluded from this tradition. Just to clarify, you mentioned at the outset that that in this village, um, women, uh, it's, it's, it's male only performances. Mm -hmm. um, so just two questions of clarification. Despite the fact that women such as yourself can perform the role of Satyabhama in urban areas, it is the case that in this village to this day, that is a role that is limited to only male participation, correct? Yes, I mean, they still host uh, festivals in the village center. So they have a, a Ram, Ramalingeshwara Swami and Bala Tripura Sundari temple. So that is a temple to Shiva and the goddess at the center of the Agraharam. And um, there is a platform or stage that has now been constructed that it's right adjacent to that temple. And they have outdoor performances that, that go on throughout the year. And those performances can very often involve dancers who are coming in from even the United States and performing on that stage. So they're, they're very familiar with having dancers outside of their community come and perform. And those can be men and women. They can also be from a variety of cast backgrounds. It doesn't matter you know, necessarily, they're not restricted in that way. However, when you talk to them, um, and I, you know, for example, I talked to the dancer who's portrayed in the cover of the book, um, Vedantam Venkata Nagachalapati Rao, who I call Venku. His, I had talked to his mother and she's featured in chapter five. And what really struck me is that she described this yearning for wanting to dance. Like as a child, she would go and kind of sneak into dance lessons and want to dance, but the, the elder gurus of the village would sort of throw sticks at her and shout at her and tell her to leave. And she's very charismatic um, and she was very willing to share all this information with me. But then when I asked her, well, what, what do you feel like when other people from outside the village come and perform? You know, what do you feel like when women perform? And she said, well, you know, all those people might come and they might perform, but we, you know, those of us in the village, we want our men to dance. So there's this still this idea or this longstanding sort of impression that only Brahmin men from the Kuchpuri village should be taking on Satyabhama's role. Um, and everyone else, they might come and dance, but it's never, it's never as authoritative as when a Kuchpuri Brahmin man dances. Um, isn't, it, isn't it fascinating that, um, that the measure of authenticity for this performance of Satyabhama is actually um, in the context of this village uh, a male performer yes so i mean i'm fascinated by that because it to me it seems like such a paradox but part of it and as i talk about in chapter one is tied to the community's um uh, sort of ideas around origins so they have according to the kuchipudi brahman community as well as according to probably any kuchipudi dancer the founding saint of kuchipudi is um as 
a figure named Satendra. Um, and he has his own hagiography in which he was a young boy. He, you know, traveled around and learned the Shastras and learned Vedas and learning also the artistic sort of Shastras, not Shastra among others, and became renamed as Satendra. And he had this kind of moment where he was trying to cross uh, the Krishna River and he was almost caught in this torrential storm and he prayed to Krishna. And he decided from then on that um, Krishna saved him from the storm. And he decided from then on that he would renounce and become a sannyasi and dedicate his life to singing Krishna's praises. And so according to the hagiography, he envisions himself as Satyabhama, the wife of Krishna, and writes Bhama Kalapam um, in honor of Krishna. And so, and then at the end of the hagiography, it states that, that he teaches it to the Brahmin boys of a village called Kuchelapuram, and, and then mandates that every Brahmin boy from that village must take on Satipama's Trivesham at least once in their life. And that village, which is now called Kuchpuri, um, the prescription of, of Satyendra to take on the Trivesham of Satipama still continues to this day. So it's not just a, any role, right? It's actually the role that they have to perform. And they would invariably cite this prescription of Satyendra. Um, that, that's why they, they take on Satipama's Vesham, um, is because their founding saint has mandated that they need to do so. Um, so the idea of, you know, this, you know, a, a common trope in bhakti traditions is the idea of vocal guising, where a male poet, you know, dons the female voice to speak to their god. And then that kind of vocal guising gets translated into an actual sartorial practice. That is, dancers taking on, you know, all this costume and makeup um, to become a female character in order to live up to this prescription by their founding saint. So there are kind of these double layers of impersonation that happen um, through this hagiography. So would you say that um, at its core, uh, this this stimulation, uh, this dawning of the feminine guys for the sake of playing Satyabhama is um, implicated in this theological impulse towards bhakti, um, bhakti towards a male deity. Like, would you say that's a crucial aspect of why um, not just the not just the Srivasham, but but the Srivasham of Satyabhama in particular is so valorized in this village? I think so. I think that. The, the broader process of, of impersonation is seminal to this community. And I, as I talk about in the introduction to the book, I use impersonation and strivasham or vasham interchangeably because that's actually how my interlocutors use the term. Um, so they would, when they're talking about, you know, uh, taking on a woman's guise in English, they would use the word impersonation or female impersonator. And then when they talk about it in Telugu, they would use the word strivasham. So they would go back and forth. Um, and so that's why I kind of um, unpack my reasons <laughs> for this terminology. Um, but I do think that the kind of broader bhakti trope of guising, whether it's what I call vocal guising, that is of the male poet taking on the female voice to speak to the god, or the Brahmin male dancer taking on the guise of Satyabhama to fulfill the vow to their saint, um, permeates on the level of both narrative and performance. And um, one of the claims that I make in chapter one is actually this guising practice for the Brahmins of the village is probably is, 
is equivalent to a samskara. That is, it's a, equivalent to a kind of rite of passage for them, um, almost like the way that upanayana might be for most Brahmins who are in other settings. Um, and so they they really take you know pride in noting or showing photographs of them in Sri Vesham, even if they're not actually that great. And so some of them are very clear that you know I did it just once. I didn't really look that good, so I never did it again. But I had to do it. Right. So part of that is you know, this rite of passage in this community. And what's also interesting is that the practice of Sri Vesham is becoming obsolete. Right. When you have female dancers um, joining Kuchpudi and actually dominating the Kuchpudi stage now in the 21st century, all across the world, there's actually no point for Brahmin men to be taking on the Sri Vesham. And they say that themselves, that it's increasingly becoming um, not necessary for them to participate in. And so thinking about well, what happens with masculinity and Brahmin masculinity when the very like practice that enables their, you know, their status within the village is increasingly becoming obsolete in the, the contemporary context. So sort of the book kind of traces that from start to finish. So with respect to the dawning of the Srivasham to place Satya Bhama, is the need, the performativity of Satya Bhama as a role, or is the need the construction of masculinity in some way? You mean uh, in terms of their need? Yeah, so if, if there's no need, if this is obsolete, is this, is this obsolete now, there's no need because there are women to place at the Obama, or is there no need because, um, because the, the, the function this was serving in terms of Brahman masculinity is now obsolete? That's a good question. I never thought about it in terms of that way, but I think that for the need, I think for them to hang on to this practice is that it preserves some form of tradition. The word is sampradayam in Telugu that they use. Um, it preserves some form of sampradayam uh, for this kind of circumscribed community of Brahmin men. I actually think now at this point, they're kind of hanging on to it because without it, then it would make their their village, their community not as as unique as, as it is um, in this kind of changing landscape. However, the need to perform Satya Bhama can be done by anyone. And so chapter four traces actually an urban performance of Bhama Kalapam in which a female dancer actually enacts Satya Bhama and the ways in which um, some of the, the community has viewed that. So what they will say in the village is that, oh, well, if a woman does it, it's not really that great of a thing, right? It's much harder when a man has to take on Sri Vesham. Um, but outside of the, the community, um, it's very common to see female dancers enact a variety of roles, including Satyabhama's role. But I think it doesn't carry the same religious weight um, as when Brahmin men do it. So the way that I talk about it in the book is now the need is it functions as a placeholder of a tradition, a reminder of this kind of I know bygone era in which there was this prescription by this founding saint in which these Brahmin men had to perform. And so Brahmin men might continue to perform it to this day, including the one who's pictured on the cover of the book as a kind of reminder of that tradition. But the requirement that it needs to be done only by a female dancer or by a male dancer, excuse, excuse me, um, is, is increasingly challenging because the number of dancers are becoming increasingly smaller uh, who are skilled at actually performing that role. So I'd say now today in the, you know, in the contemporary context, there's maybe one or two from the village who act, can actually perform Satya Bama's Vesham on stage. Um, and that contrasts with the number of female dancers that are performing these characters across the transnational landscape. 
the fact that this this rich and and and, and uh, particular practice is a placeholder for tradition that makes so much sense to me I mean, we see this in all kinds of cultures whether it's in um, european nations or certainly north america where you have all all kinds of examples i happen to be in canada now so the royal canadian mounted police might be an example of that on some level where there's there's a function but it's also hearkening to um uh to a different age right tradition especially when used um when used in pop and circumstance. Now that makes sense to me. And the idea that, well, there's not much of a need because there are all of these um, female dancers, that makes sense to me. The thing that really intrigues me is that uh, traditionalists in this tradition would view a performance uh, by a woman, uh, so, so assuming uh, that a male and a female performer did an equally good job at um, performing uh, the provision, they would nevertheless credit the male dancer uh, for having to undergo the greater transformation. It seems. It mm -hmm. seems that the, the metric. It's fascinating to me that the metric is as much the resultant performance as it is the 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 the, 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 the requisite transformation of the performer to actually get there. And that, that's more arduous for um, uh, um, a man, presumably, somehow. Yeah, there's, a, it's an interesting, there's an, what I talk about, not quite um, as much in this book, but in earlier work, is an aesthetics of impersonation. There, as an audience member, people are fascinated by watching this male dancer and become this female character. So there's um, in, you know, I have two coffee books on Kuchpudi that are written by well-known Indian dance critics, um, Sunil Katari, for example, that profiles um, photographs by a well-known Indian uh, dance photographer, Avinash Pasricha, that has Vedantam Satyanarana Sharma, who's featured in the first page of the book, taking on Satyabhama's Trivesham. And there's this like interest in watching that transformation occur. There's also in Satyanarana Sharma's own um, public interviews, he talks a lot about the ways in which he's actually tricked his audiences into thinking that he actually is a woman. So there's this interest again in female impersonation as a, as a practice of passing. Um, I actually, I try not to gender impersonation in the book because I'm kind of pushing against gender binaries, but they, you do use the language of female impersonation. Um, my interlocutors did. So there is that interest, but what's also fascinating on the flip side is that in chapter four, I talk about Magavesham or Purushavesham, that is of a female dancer donning a male guise, which is also common now today. It was not the case in, you know, in early forms of Kuchpudi dance, but now in the kind of 20th and 21st century context, there's so many female dancers and far fewer male dancers that female dancers oftentimes have to take on a male role. And that process is never likened, um, it's, it's never kind of comparable to the practice of donning the strivation. So somehow it's far more challenging for a male dancer to become a female character than it is for a female dancer to become a male character. Um, and it actually extends past just, you know, Kuchpuri. So um, I cite the work of Judith Halberstam, um, Jack Halberstam, uh, who uh, has a book called Female Masculinity. And they, at the end of the book, actually trace the fact that drag queen versus drag king culture is very distinct, that somehow drag queen culture is more about this kind of performativity of femininity, um, but the drag king culture doesn't have the same kind of performative effect. And so the way that they say is that sort of drag kings haven't learned how to 
to turn masculinity into theater in the same way. So there's something that that indicates again that masculinity becomes the normative category and femininity becomes the spectacle. Um, and so we find that same th process happening here. Srivasham is much more of a spectacle and much more aesthetically relished. And when a female dancer takes on Krishna's role, for example, it's just like, oh, okay, there's another female dancer doing Krishna who already is kind of gender ambiguous to begin with. The example you use, I was actually thinking of um, the exact same example uh, in, in a modern context, the, the example of drag queens in terms of, you know, you may have drag queens at a local gay bar, for example, uh, and you may have drag queens at, a, at an establishment for a much broader audience that is um, primarily straight or a very mixed crowd. And the appeal is the, the appeal there is not particularly tied to an orientation or a niche or a subculture. The appeal is the power of the performativity of, of the artist and that there's somehow appeal there that this, 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 this man could accomplish the feat of donning this garb, donning this air of, of this highly convincing uh, or entertaining or charismatic uh, performance. That was the example that came to mind as you were speaking. So I'm glad you, 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 you made the comparison between drag queen culture and drag king culture. And that's another fascinating topic because is it such that, is it a stereotype or is there something to be said about the idea of creativity itself being a feminine aspect? Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, the arts in general are dominated by people who have a preponderance towards femininity, whether they're male or female or irrespective of orientation. Um, these are all really interesting questions. You, you know what I'd like to know, Harshita, is, is there something that really surprised you in your journey? Did you, did you find out what you set out to find out? Did something really uh, yeah, throw you for a loop? You know, tell us about you know, your own feeling on the findings of your work. Sure. Um, so I would say the thing that surprised me the most is probably what I wrote about in my fifth chapter, um, that was a, you know, when we write dissertations, we have a limited scope and I think we go in with an idea of a project. Um, and for me, it was, I had just read Gender Trouble with, by Judith Butler. I met Vedantam Satyanar Sharma in his, you know, in his home and he burst out into Satipama's guy, right, in his um, singing Satipama's Pravesha Darabu. And I have photographs from that, like, initial encounter of him in the introduction. And that was what I had set out to do, which was to think about these Brahmin men who become, um, become women are mandated to, to, mandated to do so by their founding saint and who create a normative ideal of masculinity um, in doing so. That is, I actually argue that Vaishim actually enables them to create normative masculinity, which is almost the opposite of drag, which is very much about camp and subversion. Um, and so I was interested in that contrast. I think that, however, after completing field work and, you know, and starting a new job and, you know, moving on from the book, when I went back, the, the the piece that was sort of missing what were the women of the village, right? Like, what are what are the women doing while the men they're, they're, the men are taking on women's guises? And I think what really surprised me was that the women of the village. I think I sort of knew it, but I wasn't paying attention when I was doing the fieldwork. So when I was going back. Um, to kind of really hear and listen to their stories and talk to them and to take that seriously about the ways in which they were excluded from performance. And so the fifth chapter centers on um, Chavali Bala Tripurasandhi 
Kuchpudi, who is the daughter of a, a, probably the most well-known Kuchpudi guru. Um, he's ubiquitous to Kuchpudi dance at this point. He's passed away. He passed away in 2012 after my field work. His name is Vampadichin Satyam. And he was probably the reason that Kuchpudi really shifted from, um, from the village into Chennai. So he started the Kuchpudi Art Academy, which is kind of like, I mean, I describe it as like the, I quote a scholar who describes it as the Mecca for all aspiring Kuchpudi artists. Um, it's the akin to the Kuchpudi um, Kalakshetra, uh, Rukmini Devi Arendale's Dance Institute. And so he taught like hundreds and hundreds of women to dance. But what surprised me the most is that he did not teach his own daughters to dance. And his third daughter, um, Baliaka, who I talk about in the book in the fifth chapter, just so desperately wanted to dance. And I knew this while I was, she became a really close um, interlocutor during field work, but I think I didn't ever take her story um, seriously enough until I sort of came back and kind of looked at my notes and then went back and interviewed her. Um, and so her her story becomes the central centerpiece of the last chapter. Um, and it's it's one that really did take me by surprise, which is to think about what happens when women want to participate in this forum, when they are from this community and the ways in which they are kind of written out of that story. But then the other complicated piece is that they're still Brahmin women, right? They still hold seats of authority and power and they're able to kind of have some access to this art form in ways that, you know, Kalavantulu or Devadasi communities, that is courtesan communities cannot have that same access. So thinking about their kind of um, interesting interstitial space. Um, so I think that the, the last chapter and her story in particular is probably the thing that really um, I wasn't expecting to to learn was sort of setting out on the project. It really does seem that um, impersonation is vital to this. It's, it's, it's key to this tradition, to this art form. Um, this reminds me a lot about, obviously I do something very different. I look at, I look at texts. Um, I'm not sure how I didn't become an ethnographer because I quite enjoy learning from people and speaking to people. <laughs> but um, have you, you must have come across even in passing the myth of the turning of the ocean. Yes. The myth that this so much, there's so much uh, content here that reminds me of the myth of the turning of the ocean when the, the devas and the asuras, the loosely speaking, the gods and the demons, you know, they're, they're churning for, for the riches of, they're, they're looking for the nectar of immortality. And, and um, with their eons of churning, you know, uh, various various substances and entities emerge it's a very complex myth but at the end of it um they procure the elixir but the gods actually trick the demons uh they say you help us you know we'll share it they have no intention of sharing it so they steal it in order to distract the gods vishnu impersonates uh, a woman a, a feminine form he's mohini um but there's one <laughs> there's one there's one demon who is um very astute and he's like you know what he saw through vishnu's guys so he 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 dons the garbs of the gods and he's sitting in the assembly of the gods it's rahu and this is how rahu gets some of the elixir of immortality so you know the theme of impersonation is 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 um obviously beyond uh being at the core of this tradition it's it's in the lore it's in the culture it's in the air it's it's sort of part of uh indian mythology even theology uh, which brings me to a, a really core idea that that you talk about in your book, um, which may very well empower um, the success of this tradition uh, on Indian soil, and that's this idea of Maya. Could you tell us a bit about the concept of Maya and 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 how you use it in your book? Yeah. So um, 
So the, the word itself, I translated as constructed artifice. Um, that is a translation that then kind of came about in conversation with uh, Lori Patton, who uh, was uh, part of my dissertation committee. Um, and I, I really like the idea of using the, the language of artifice rather than illusion. Um, and so, um, so that's how it, it appears in the book as the translation. But it's a term that uh, commonly appears uh, translated as illusion. It has a very, very long textual history. I give a kind of brief um, overview of the textual history in chapter three. Um, but the reason that I use it is because my interlocutors actually use the term. So in this dance drama that I'm, I'm focusing on with Satipama, the dance drama is, is really simple. It's a Satipama is separated from Krishna on account of a lover's quarrel. She has a conversation with her friend Madhvi, her Sakhi, and describing her sort of pains of separation. And then she writes a love letter to Krishna and she sends it with Madhvi. And then Krishna comes back to her palace and they sort of have a lover's quarrel and then they reunite. That's it. I mean, it, and it, it was a dance drama that could actually be staged for an entire night, you know, in the next day, but it's really simple in terms of who the characters are. But what's the most interesting for me and what's, what's featured in chapter three of the book is actually not about Satyabhama, but the other character, Madhavi. So Madhavi is a character that um, is actually the Sutradhara, that is the director of the, the show, who kind of uh, plays the Natuvangam, which is the symbols, um, and, and kind of essentially leads the show. And this character becomes Madhavi when talking to Satyabhama. Uh, without any change in costume or even change in bodily movement or even change in kind of voice um, uh, delivery, vocal delivery. And, and then becomes the male character Madhavudur, Madhava, when speaking with Krishna. So we have one, one performer who's enacting the Sutradhara, enacting Madhavi, and enacting Madhava. That is three different characters um, and two different genders within the course of a single dance drama. And so the way that my interlocutors would describe the shift is they would use the word Maya uh, to describe how the character can actually move across these, or how can, how can one single performer become three different characters in a, in a single dance drama without any costume changes. And for me, I thought that this was really interesting. It intrigued me that there was this repeated invocation, not just by one dancer, but actually by three, four, five different dancers who would always reference Maya. And they wouldn't use the word Leela, right? That was what I would expect or play, right? But they would actually use the word Maya. And to me, it was interesting, um, theoretically, as a concept, to think about Maya not simply as sort of illusion um, or, you know, maybe in a kind of Advaita Vedanta sense of the illusion of our bodies or this world, et cetera, um, but rather to think about Maya as a term that could be a theoretical concept that could describe the illusory nature of gender itself as a construct. Um, and so it kind of allowed me in that chapter to think about the ways in which these dancers were using a, a vernacular category to describe shifts across gender that ultimately yielded um, them being rendered as artifice. And so that's the, the, the kind of language that I use in that chapter is kind of building a theory of thinking about gender, but that's very much vernacularly grounded in the language and discourse of my interlocutors. And so that's where sort of Maya comes out. Um, and so that's why the book is also titled The Artifice of Brahmin Masculinity, um, because it's hearkening back again to this language of Maya that's used by my interlocutors to describe this gender phenomenon. Maya is really a fascinating concept. Um... So when I study the myths of the of, of the goddess um, for my work, it 
um, rather than discourse about Maya, there is discourse a little bit in the first episode where the, 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 the king is lost and he's confused and he's worried about his kingship and the sage schools him about Maya, this, this delusive principle. But equally, uh, Maya is creative, right? Maya is the, the supreme, um, supreme divinity in, in, this, in this myth cycle, the Devi, the goddess. And it's, it fascinates me that there are, there's this ambivalence of Maya as delusive and, and problematic, but Maya as creative um, and very much integral to, to embodied life in the world. Um, there was, when I was uh, reading your discourse of Maya, uh, this idea really came to me in terms of these myths of the goddess and, and the, uh, the when you comment on, on the fact that, you know, transvestitism is, is a much more narrow band of uh, impersonation, which you mean that impersonation pervades so many, um, so many avenues of Indian thought and culture. Um, uh, women impersonating other women, women impersonating men, men impersonating women, etc., etc. Uh, there is this fantastic climax of the third episode of Devi Mahatmya where um, the main demon, she's, she's sort of, um, with each successive uh, chapter, she's cut down all of the emissaries of the demonic forces. And then she finally meets with, uh, with uh, Shumba himself, who's usurped Indra's throne. And she's, it's sort of this, this duel between the two. And, and basically, um, she's like, race yourself for, for about to, to battle. And he's like, well, you know, you... you you know, easy for you to say. You you rely on the strength of all of these of your of of your forces. You know, why don't you be brave and fight yourself? Mm-hmm. And she goes, "You fool! These are emanations of my own singular power. Watch as I draw them back into my being." And she does, and she battles him alone. And it's this fascinating idea came came to me while reading your your subsection about. Um, Maya is also the one impersonating the many or the many impersonating the one or however you want to think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I quite like the way in which you have um, harnessed this term that is a term used by the dancers and the community itself. And it seems to me that uh, this theological concept is, 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 is crucial to... It's 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 crucial to the soil that that allows this this practice to flourish. It seems to me. Well, I mean, I think one one of the reasons I like Maya is that I think it's a really slippery category. Like it's it like you just said. I think it it uh, has almost multiple sets of meanings of this kind of creativity um, generation. Um, sort of positive aspects and then these kind of, you know, deception, illusion. Um, So you're not really sure how to define it. And I love that ambiguity, actually, of the term, um, which allowed me to then say, hey, you know, also somebody who works on vernacular traditions um, to take a Sanskrit category and playfully, you know, kind of reimagine it, uh, to think about it in terms of gender was something I enjoyed to say, well, what if we don't privilege the Sanskrit textual history and we just take the words of these interlocutors and and play with it um, to think about gender? And the other thing that also prompted me in terms of, of using Maya was an essay that um, Rinalini Sinha, who is a colonial historian, has worked actually on colonial masculinity. She wrote an essay in a volume um, titled South Asian Feminisms. And in the essay, she talks about gender as a global category. And what she says is that we have successfully 
move in, in the kind of contemporary period we are 21st century, we have been able to articulate different iterations of gender across global contexts, but we haven't been able to articulate a kind of theoretical framing for the gender in those contexts that is specific to those contexts. So we are still kind of using Eurocentric binary understandings of gender to then map them out into, you know, con you know, various geographical locales. And so what she challenges us is to think about what would it look like to have a vernacular theory of gender? Um, how do you use local, you know, sort of terms, categories, terminologies to reframe gender as a, as a category of analysis? And so for me, playing with my, uh, um, and using as a theoretical category was a kind of way to answer that sort of charge that's put forth by uh, Professor Sinha, um, to think about, well, here are my interlocutors using a category that is a Sanskrit category, but they've envisioned it to think about gender in their particular context. And they didn't need Judith Butler to arrive at the kind of constructed nature of gender. They were able to use their own vernacular term to get to that um, place and sort of uh, theoretical framing of their own dance drama. So what if we could use that term then to think about what's happening um, both in their dance drama, right? That is what's happening with the characters in their actual dance drama, but also what's happening with their very own masculinity. Um, how does it become rendered as artifice when it's moved or shifted from a village into an urban or transnational space. So I think that, you know, uh, being a little bit uh, more permeable with these categories allows us to envision and think about South Asian material as not simply just another example of something of a broader global phenomenon, but rather actually a space in which theoretical um, insights can actually arise from. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, why don't you tell us what are you working on now? Well, a number of things. Um, I am one of the things that you had said in uh, about um, Vishnu impersonating Mohini in the context of the um, churning of the milky, milky ocean and all the other uh, examples of impersonation that show up in South Asia was one of the things that I grappled with when writing the introduction to the book. Um, initially I had sort of mapped out all these different kinds of impersonation and then it kind of got too unwieldy and I realized that I really couldn't write a book like that um, because I wasn't equipped because there were so many examples beyond the scope of what I um, was able to do in a single work. And so I've worked with um, a, a team of, of 17 or 16 other scholars and we're doing the edited volume about impersonation in South Asia. Um, and, and so it's, it's a range of contexts spanning from a wonderful set of photographs of an impersonator of Gandhi um, in rural Karnataka, um, all the way to Comic-Con uh, in Bangalore and forms of impersonation there. So we have a series of, of essays that will appear in this edited volume, um, which is now sort of in the process of being under review. So that's one. Um, I'm also working on a translation of a 16th century classical Telugu text, um, the Parijata Paranamu, which is the stealing of the Parijata tree. And again, it features Krishna and Satyabhama. So you can see sort of the theme of, of those two characters that appear throughout my work. Um, and so that is with Veltru Narayanaro, who um, is a preeminent scholar of Telugu literature who's retired and now in India. And our translation will be published um, through the Murthy Classical Library of India series. So we're hoping it'll be out in the next year or so. 
Um, and then finally, I'm working on a, a, a new project about Anamaya, who's a 15th century Pakti poet. Um, so that, that's just at the start of the project. Well, we'll certainly have to have you back on the program when any of these fascinating works uh, come out. How does that sound? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for, for having me now, and I would love to be back. Um, you're most welcome. It's our pleasure. Uh, we have been speaking today with Dr. Harshita M. Kamat, who is uh, the Vijeshwara Rao and Sita Kopaka Assistant Professor in Telugu Culture, Literature and History at Emory University. We've been speaking with her about her um, intriguing book, The Artifice of Brahmin Masculinity in South Indian Dance. Uh, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. And for those of you out there listening, um, until next time, keep reading. Thank you. <laughs>